0: like a lot prequel okay <laughs> it's like the star wars prequels right like don't seem like they have anything to do with the pre what the, the ones that you like um but uh we we are we will get to some christmas messages uh, next week we'll have the christmas play wednesday club christmas play uh and i'll just give a short christmas message after that and then and then we'll do a christmas message on the 22nd and i am the 24th i guess um <laughs> and then and then we'll be back in exodus after that so Exciting. Uh, but Exodus chapter five today. I'm calling this "Dust Saith." Uh, the translation I use doesn't doesn't use "saith," uh, but it just sounds cooler. And and we'll get to that with, with what, what that uh, what that's all about in a minute. But but before I dive in, I want to say this because I, I think this is kind of set up the the story today and and what we see Moses go through in the story today. And that's um, just. I, You know, I think that a lot of us have had an experience um, that is sometimes referred to in the, like, Christian world, Christianese uh, world as, like, a mountaintop moment or uh, can be called a spiritual high, Um, uh, but it typically is something that happens, like, if you go uh, on a mission trip or you go away for a retreat or for a conference or to if you're, you know go back in the day, back to, to summer camp or something like that, or winter camp when you're in, in high school or junior high, uh, and you have this, this moment where you get away from it all and you connect with God in a powerful way that you hadn't ever connected with him before previously. Um, and you feel just so close to God. You feel on fire, like you're ready to come back and tell everybody you know what you've gone through and, and you're just excited and you feel so powerful you feel full of the holy spirit you feel like you're ready for it and then you come back and that like goes away and usually in some kind of because something happens and it goes away and sometimes uh people then equate that to well that wasn't real right they they look at that and go well because it was able to be snatched away from me because that that feeling left me when i got back home after a week i was back just like i was if i was if not worse than i was before that they go well, then that must not have been a real experience. But I would say that it is a real experience, and what's happening there is spiritual warfare. Um, when you're coming down from that, when you when you come back, you're on fire for God. That's when Satan needs to do something about you, right? because that's when you can be used for him. And so when you're in, when you're in those moments, when you come and you have that fire. I used to tell this to, when I was in youth ministry, I told this to my kids all the time when we come back from a conference or from a a camp weekend or something like that. Like, Satan's going to try to steal this feeling that you have. And it usually happens like right away. You get back home, and your family members are fighting, or all of a sudden, you know, family members are mad at you, and and there's conflict, and that, that could steal it right there. It's just gone. But that's spiritual warfare. That's Satan strategically hitting you when you are at your most powerful. And because if he can neutralize you at that point, that, um, that's great for him. And that's what we see here, right? Moses is going to be in this situation. Because he's, he's coming down from, he had the, the burning bush encounter. Uh, last week we saw he was saved from this near-death experience. Uh, that's very dramatic. Um, you can check that out on the podcast if you want. Um, and and then Moses and Aaron reconnected. He reconnected with his long-lost brother, and they they partnered up. Aaron's on on board, and then they go tell the Israelites, and the Israelites immediately are on board, yes, God's going to save us. He's going to rescue us. They fall down and worship him. Moses and Aaron, like, it was easy for them to communicate this, and the people responded exactly the way they hoped. (laughs) Everything is going great. Moses is at, at such a high point, right? He's like, man, God is powerful. He's doing exactly what he said he would do, this is amazing. Everything is going great. But I'll give you a spoiler alert. The last line of this, of this chapter is Moses saying to God, you have not delivered your people at all. That's where we're going to end today. It'll be a real high point. It'll make you feel real good. All right, let's get into it. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Who is Yahweh? Yahweh. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Lord, the God of Israel. So I'm going I'm to plug in Yahweh where it says Lord in all caps, because that's what's being said there. And because of the way this particular interaction goes down, it's really important that you understand they're saying the name of God. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went, to, went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh, our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Okay. So Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. That's a question that's not answered in this. Is like, how do they get access? How did these two Hebrews who are like they're from they're of the slave class, right? All their 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 brethren are, are slaves. Even if Moses isn't a slave at this moment, he's coming back to where everybody of that ethnicity is a slave. And somehow he and Aaron get access to the court. He may have still had a few friends uh, in the court from the time he, when he was raised in the palace. Um, and, uh, but it might be just that they had the boldness to ask. right? They had the boldness to ask for that access, to ask to go see Pharaoh. And we also have to remember they had three powerful signs I'm pretty sure that if you wanted to see somebody and you had a stick that you could turn into a a snake, you could get past a lot of obstacles. And then their request is to travel three days into the wilderness to worship God. They say, can we take a three days travel into the wilderness so we can worship our God? Which is not the same as freeing them. That's an important thing. But... He also doesn't say they're coming back. That's kind of a trick, maybe a kind of a a, intentionally uh, vague request where he's like, can we go worship? We're going to go three days into the the wilderness and worship, and then they just don't come back. Maybe that's the trick. We're not sure. But that is what God told him to say. He did tell him to, to, to request that. And this request is not an uncommon practice at the time. At the time, this was something that Egyptians did. They let their slaves have time off to go worship their their gods so this is not an uncommon request for them to make (coughs) and so the fact that pharaoh immediately rejects it does show them that does does show that the the nature of pharaoh's heart right and and where his heart is and but what's being set up here is this kind of battle between pharaoh's glory and god's glory that's really the, the battle that's being set up here um we also notice that they don't approach with a humble request. They're not, oh, great Pharaoh, will you please let your people uh, go and make, and make sacrifice to their God. That's not how they do it. They do it with a direct challenge to Pharaoh's authority. And that's found in that phrase, thus says, or as I put, thus saith. Right? They, they say, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is a phrase, this is a, a type of phrasing that is used by monarchs right? at this time that have o- absolute authority. It's not something that can be denied. It's not really a request at all. It's thus says, thus saith. It's like this will be, <coughs> is where they're coming, it, coming from it with. And, they, and they're saying, thus says Yahweh, which Pharaoh very likely didn't know who that was. He's not, it's not, a, he's not being, um, you know, He's not being silly here. Going, I don't know who that guy is. No, he doesn't know. He's never heard that, that word before. He also, if you notice, says, he says, so he says, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he says, let my people go. He's saying, you're, they're not Pharaoh's servants. They're God's people. Right? God's saying, let your servants go. He's saying, let my people go. They're my people. They're not your servants. They're my people. And he also says that they may hold a feast to me, so that they'll worship Yahweh instead of working for Pharaoh. So you see how this whole phrase that Moses reports, right in the very verse 1, thus says the Lord God of Israel, right there is this command, let my people go, my people, not your people, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So they can go and, and worship me instead of working for you. It's a direct challenge to who Pharaoh is and his authority over the Israelites. So Pharaoh's response is, who is Yahweh? He doesn't know who that is. Um, and so he's going to refuse to let the, let the Israelites go. He's not letting them go. So the question then that we need to look at here is, who is Yahweh at this point? And, and we can even consider, Pharaoh knows nothing about Yahweh. What do the Israelites know? Because that's, this, this question of who is Yahweh is really a central question of the book of Exodus altogether. It's answering this question who is this God? Because if we look at what they know at this point, they have the, their, the extent of their scripture, and it's likely not even, maybe written down in, in parts at this point, but it's in no way like a book. And, and for most of them, it's oral tradition, it's orally passed down, um, is just Genesis, right? So they have creation. Story. They have the Adam and Eve story with the fall, mankind's rebellion against God. They have Noah, so that's really the only... Noah is really the only reference to any kind of deliverance they have at this point. That's the only, only story they have of God rescuing his people. And really there, he's killing more people than rescuing people. He rescues Noah and his family, but everybody else dies. Then you've got the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is really... Again, mostly a story of, of God calling them out, calling them to something greater, uh, and them obeying him. That's their, their response, and obedience is, is powerful. But that's really what they have. And then you have the story of Joseph and his brothers, which is what brought them to this point anyway. So they don't have a lot of knowledge of who Yahweh is. They, they can't, if that's all you knew, think about consider that, if that's all you knew of God was just what's contained in Genesis. There's a lot there, a lot of good stuff there, but it's not a lot. And so he's really going to reveal who he is through this uh, encounter with Pharaoh and with his people and rescuing them. Okay, moving on to the next point, heavier work, verses 6 through 18. So they've made their request, Pharaoh's denied it. He's going to go a little further here starting in verse 6 to 18. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cried, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says, the, says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Notice right there, thus says. Thus says Pharaoh. This is the, that, the, that shows you the power of, that pre, of their request and really being a, a command. Here we see Pharaoh giving a command through his taskmasters and foremen. Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat us, like your servants, like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Okay, so brick-making required straw. Like, that's all you really need to know to get this passage. that, that y- If you were going to make bricks, there's mud bricks that they made, uh, you had to have straw in there, otherwise they would just crumble apart. They kind of provided the, the structure that you needed to make it. And so they were making bricks, this Is one of their major tasks as slaves, is to make bricks. And they, he said let them find their own straw. Before it would kind of be brought in, and this how they would make the bricks. Now, same amount of work, but you have to gather your own straw. It's pretty simple to understand why this was a problem. He's intentionally making it impossible for them to meet their daily quota. He wants them to apologize for their request and to be worked so hard and beaten so much that they don't have the energy to request anything else. And what we see here is that Yahweh has gotten to Pharaoh, right? Even the fact that in verse 17, he says, Yahweh, notice in verse 17, he says, but you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. That's stuck in his head that, hey, there's this God that they worship, the God that has the gall to say to me, let my people go. And so what we see here is is they've made their request, and now things have gotten way worse. they got heavier work. they got harder work. They're being beaten. That's real. That's really happening to them. After they they had Moses and Aaron come, they saw Moses' signs that God had given him, and and they're like, yes, God has come to rescue us. They're worshiping him. Then, okay, Moses and Aaron, they're going to go, and they're going to make this request, and it doesn't work. And now their work has gotten harder. You see how this is starting to take effect, how Satan is starting to attack them intentionally to take away this mountaintop moment, this spiritual high that they're experiencing. And this is what happens in our lives when, this hap- when, when these kind of things happen. That when, when, when Satan's authority in your life is challenged, he's going to retaliate. When, when you start to give more of your heart, more of your life over to Jesus, Satan is going to want that back. Because that's the alternative, it's under his control. He's going to try to regain your submission. Things will get harder, that's, which is why we have to learn to persevere. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Right, what Paul says is when we suffer, when, when difficult times happen to us, and those can happen for all kinds of reasons, but he says when that happens, that produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. And sometimes... We question, like, why does God allow bad things to happen to us? Why does he allow us to suffer? Why does he allow us to be attacked by Satan? Why does he allow these things to happen? Well, endurance can only happen over time. Like, you can only learn to gain, you can only gain endurance, you can only learn these things with, a, with time. And so he allows these things to happen so that this process can t- take place. And so that he can pour his love out to us. It says we rejoice because his love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So we see this happening. Let's see, continue to see here how the people respond. Chapter 5, starting in verse 19, not delivered. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce the number of bricks your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. You have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Okay, so what we see initially here is this is the first time that the people are going to complain to Moses. But it is just the first time. It's going to be a recurring theme. Right, they complain to him all the time. And he's telling them, like, hey, you, you just made things worse. Like, you just made things worse. You didn't make anything better. It's worse than it was before. And so Moses turns to Yahweh in despair. He's distraught. That's not at all what he hoped for. It's not what he thought. Like when he set out for the mission, God told him, "Like I'm going to rescue your people." Moses, was like, great. I'm a superhero. I'm going to go do it. Uh, you give, give me these these signs and everything. Like, let's go do it. Let's go rescue the people. And then, like right away, they come to him. Like this is days apart. These these events of like him telling them, "Hey, God sent me to rescue." You, he's going to rescue us through you, uh, through me. That is days apart from then they're being beaten every day because they're not meeting their quota. This guy made it Im- because Pharaoh made it impossible. Those are days apart. That, it, that it is so great to so terrible. And so he says, you know, why have you done evil to your people? He says, why did you ever send me? This is exactly what Moses was most, I, I believe, we don't know for sure, but based on the text, I think that this is what Moses was most afraid of. Like, more than anything else, he was afraid of being rejected by his people again. If You remember, like, he, he knew he was a Hebrew, he was born a Hebrew, but he was raised in the palace. He had, conf- he had a conflicted identity over or who he was, you know, was he Egyptian because he was raised by this adoptive Egyptian mother, the daughter of the pharaoh? Or was he really one of his people? Because she let him know that he was one of, her, one of, one of the Israelites. And so then he goes out, remember initially he goes out to see what's going on with them. He sees some, a slave being beaten and he kills the taskmaster, he kills the Egypt, Egyptian taskmaster, hides his body. That's why he ends up fleeing the Midian in the first place. Because they say, they say to him, th- his own people say to him, you're not judge over us. Who do you think you are? And so this is, I think, what he was most afraid of is coming back is, are my people going to accept me? And they say, you, made th- you only made things worse. He's like, God, why did you send me? Why would you put me at this risk? Make me question who I am again. Like, let me go back to Midian and just keep raising sheep with my family. Like, I don't need this. Why did you send me at all? And he tells him, "You have not delivered your people at all. So far, things have only gotten worse." It's a dark point. It's a dark point. But I'll say this, and uh, we'll wrap up with this this little bit here. That I think that this is not unlike when Jesus came. This is not unlike Christmas. No, it doesn't sound like Christmas. I'll explain that when Jesus came, when Jesus initially came, think about the fact that the night he was born, angels came and said this to the shepherds. Let's jump to Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 14. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so if you remember the shepherds, that message, they, they run to Bethlehem, find the baby, they worship him, and then they come back. They're glorifying and praising God, telling other people about what they heard and saw. They're excited. They go back to the fields. Maybe you think about what happened after that? Nothing. Nothing happens. Like the she- if you're the shepherds, you're like, cool. The Savior is born. That's amazing. Like, and they go see him. They come back. Like, Can you guys believe it? The Savior is born that's amazing. Maybe for the next week, they're like, this is, man, I can't believe, I still can't believe what we saw. I can't believe what happened. For like the next week, they're talking about it. Then they're like, so this Savior being born thing, is anything going to happen with that? Like, yeah, he's born, he's a baby, so I guess we have to wait for him to grow up. Like, it, it's, it's a, if you think about their life after this, it's kind of a letdown. And for most of them, like, they're older shepherds, they die before he did anything good. The only thing that really happens, that, that we can say, like, they probably noticed, is that two years later, around two years later, the wise men come. You know when you see, uh, like, nativity scenes and stuff, and it's like, shepherds and wise men together? That, that never happened. They come way far apart. Totally different time. Jesus is like a little toddler when the, when the wise men show up. And so they show up and, uh, and go to Herod and, and ask, you know, where is, the, where is this newborn king born? And, and Herod goes, like, this is bad news for me. I, I don't want my ch- authority challenged. And so he tells them, like, hey, go find the child. When you find him, come back and tell me. I want to go worship him too. He's lying. He's not going to go worship him too. So that, and the wise men know that. We find that out here. In, in, uh, the wise men know that they don't come back, and so Herod realizes what happened. We see this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he ascertained from the wise men think about it if you ever think about the fact that that means that those shepherds if they had babies around the same time that Jesus was born or in the two years in a two- year time frame around when Jesus was born, they would have had babies killed right they're in the region of Bethlehem they're in the fields he says all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region all those babies get killed so that's the the only change to their life is that all of a sudden all of their babies are getting killed. And even if they didn't know him personally, the people around them, they only see things get worse. They only see things get awful. And most of them, again, maybe probably never knew, never saw Jesus as an adult. Never saw the actual effects of, of him being a savior. And so... Again, we see this, this is hope. There's this message of salvation that happens and then it can, Satan is gonna cause darkness to set in. He's going to try to steal that joy, steal that hope from you. We see this happen throughout scripture. We see this happen in our own lives. The same kind of doubt can happen to us. Just because we accept Jesus as our savior and our Lord, we say, yes, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and I wanna follow you for the rest of my life. I wanna give my life over to you, I wanna obey you. That doesn't mean things will instantly get better. Oftentimes it means it gets harder for a time. But here's what Jesus does promise in in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So his, the, the choice in following Jesus and, and, and living for him is abundant life, a life lived in the truth and an awareness of what is really happening in this world, what's really wrong in this world, and, and who God is and the fact that he came to fix it and that we can be a part of that. Not that it's going to be instantly better. This, this story, both the, the story of Exodus that we're at right now, and your story isn't over. God is still in process. He's still, he's still doing things. He's still moving. It isn't over until Jesus comes back. Let's wrap it up with this. How should we then live? Three possibilities. Number one, um, consider... I was hoping to read it off the screen, but if you don't have it. Consider which areas of your life are under God's authority. Consider, consider which areas of your life aren't under god's authority what areas does he might be want to change you need to give over to him in a new way there's constantly things that that we can discover in our hearts and our in our lives that god is doing that he uh intends to change number two recognize the, the spiritual battle that you are in right? recognize that you are under attack recognize that that as you step out as you choose to live for god as you choose to follow him more and more Satan will try to attack you, right? When you step out, when you step on the field, he's gonna, you're going to get hit, right? When you step out, he is going to come after you. When you choose to, to, to make more fellowship with, with Christians, to, to lead your family more toward God, when you choose to start talking about Jesus with your friends, your coworkers, when you choose to start volunteering in a ministry, that's when you are going to be attacked. number three, Allow suffering to produce endurance, character, and hope in you. Right? Recognize that process as it's happening. That, that is the, the goal. That is what God is trying to do. He's trying to use it in your life. And, it, and when you recognize that God is, try, is using it in your life, you can rejoice in your suffering, like Paul says. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the amazing things that you do in our lives. God. The, the amazing ways that you want to work. Um, we pray that you would constantly be driving us closer to you. Not even in our sufferings, even in our, our pain, even in uh, the difficult things that we go through. These moments like, like the Israelites are in in this chapter today, God, where, where things get harder before they get better, before you, you step in and rescue God. Some of us are in that right now, God. Some of us are in one of those moments, and we want to continue to look to you continue to see that you are not done yet that our story isn't over we pray that we'd be glorifying to you that we would rest in your mercy